Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'll be speaking with Austin Choi Fitzpatrick about his new book, The Good Drone, How Social Movements Democratize Surveillance, out from MIT Press in 2020. The Good Drone demonstrates that this technology, which we mostly associate with covert surveillance and remote warfare, has also served as a vital tool for activists, social movements, and defenders of human rights to affect pro-social campaigns. Troy Fitzpatrick argues that despite the risks and the nefarious applications of drones, these machines also have the capacity to democratize surveillance, putting a preeminent tool of statecraft in the hands of civil society. Overall, by tracing these uses, this book is an inspiring call for creativity, experimentation, and optimism regarding the humanitarian possibilities of emerging material technologies. And so now, without further ado, I give you my interview with Professor Choi Fitzpatrick. Austin, welcome to New Books Network, and I'm happy to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be chatting with you. So I'm interested in the genesis of this book and how you came around to this project. Well, it was a couple of years ago, and I'd gotten my first academic job after finishing the PhD, and and I was living in Budapest, Hungary. I was a faculty member at Central European University, and they'd started a new school of public policy. And the idea was they were going to hire folks, and, and what they actually did was hired folks from a broad array of disciplinary backgrounds and build a new kind of school of public policy. I loved that idea and enthusiastically joined the faculty and started teaching classes. And one of the classes I was tasked with teaching is a class called Human Rights Advocacy. And I thought, wow, we're a new school and we're doing something very interesting in a very interesting and unusual place. So why don't I do something interesting and unusual with my my syllabus? And so I decided instead of getting my students to write policy papers, we'd have a pitch competition and have tried to develop new ways of doing human rights advocacy. And one of the ideas that I seeded, but actually students supported, and then I ended up funding, was that we would buy a drone in order to document the size of crowds. And, and as I'm a political sociologist, and one of the things that we think of as being very important is that public turnout to large events is a decent register for a support or opposition to a public policy or a candidate or a particular issue or event. And if nobody shows up, it might mean that there is a significant amount of repression at play, or it might mean nobody actually cares about your issue. And so I thought it would be cool to sort of piggyback on the back, piggyback on all these other efforts to estimate crowd size by doing this from the air. I thought this would be interesting to do. So this class, this human rights advocacy class, we decided we're going to do this kind of interesting thing. I didn't know if it was going to work. First of all, I didn't even know if we could buy a drone and have it imported into Hungary. So we tried this out and sure enough, it worked. I ordered it from a shop in Washington state. They shipped it to me. It arrived okay. I had to pay some taxes. And we ended up, you know, we ended up using the drone to document the size of protest events. And as time went on, the course of the semester went on in this class, there just weren't that many protest events because, you know, most of the time people aren't protesting and that's just the nature of the, the nature of the thing. So as also as luck would have it, there was at the end of this semester of the semester I'm describing this, the largest protest that Budapest had seen in the 20 years since the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. There were just tons of people who turned out onto the street. 
And one of the reasons was that the other sort of protests we were trying to document were for progressive causes. They were rights-based rights-based protests for, for equality, and they had very small turnouts. And that's sad from a democratic representation standpoint for, for Hungary. But it's also um, wasn't really great for our social science experiment, which is mapping how, how many people were in a crowd. Well, along comes a much broader issue. People were protesting the tax on the internet. The government said they were going to raise the the tax on a gigabyte of internet connection. It was going to be an additional euro per gigabyte. It's actually quite a bit of money if you're a pensioner. It's a whole lot of money if you're a business, and this tax applied to everybody. So a whole bunch of people turned out on the streets, and it wasn't the sort of um, progressive voices for human rights, which is the other kinds of protests we've been documenting, but it was everybody. And so there we were with our drone trying to document crowd size, and there was everybody on the ground turned out, turning out in the tens of thousands. So there was this kind of wonderful moment where lots of people turned out to, to speak out against the public policy, the kind of thing I mentioned being imp- important from the get-go in terms of, of protest and politics. Lots of people turning out usually means something. What was interesting to me is what happened next. The government said nobody had turned up. The newspaper official channels the next couple of days said, oh, there's a handful of people, but it's the same old people that go to all those protests. You know them, that sort of thing. And we were able to work really quickly with a civil society group, investigative journalist group to take the drone footage that we'd captured and really quickly release on on Vimeo a, a cool video that showed footage from the ground and footage from the air that contradicted the government's claim that there was nobody there. Turns out there was lots of people there. And then when we ran the numbers, turns out there's tens of thousands of people there. So another protest happened, even larger protests, something like 60,000 people showed up. And again, we ran the numbers and did the math. It turns out that's a little bit more than three and a half percent of the population of the country. And if you zoom out a little bit further, you realize that that number, three and a half percent, is not arbitrary. It's a number that that Erica Chenoweth and her colleagues have documented is the kind of the kind of the tipping point number. Where if you can get three and a half percent of the people out on the streets nonviolently, uh, supporting or opposing a policy or an idea or a person, they usually get what they're demanding. And so sure enough, this is what happened. The social movement sort of uh, won, the protests won, the government dropped the the uh, the bill that they had been prop- that they proposed this gigabyte this dollar euro per gigabyte tax. and uh, and the protests dissipated because they'd gotten what they wanted. So that was this kind of this kind of like long origin story about how I stumbled into owning a drone because I just happened to be teaching a class. But it also is, tells a little bit more about how we first used that drone and then some of what I think uh, about the way drones can be used in civil society. Uh, we got invited a couple of months later to a government um, a government sort of public policy conversation in which they announced that the kind of thing we had done was no longer legal, could no longer fly um, at events where the police were present. So which represents a particular kind of concern in my mind about about accountability and transparency. But that kicked this off. And I, and I then started thinking more seriously about this as an area of research. It wasn't before as an area of sort of scholarly inquiry and additional um, like empirical, as an empirical puzzle. How often is this happening? Where does it happen? What does it mean? And that really started the process of asking questions and gathering data that, that eventually became this book. Yeah. And you mentioned in the beginning that, you know, they're really 
isn't or, or wasn't or isn't a body of scholarship to really look at these civil uses of drones. But instead, you know, most scholarship on technology and democracy and social movements is all about social media. Why, why is that? And, and how does this fill an important gap? Well, one of the reasons I think we talk about technology in the way we talk about technology is that communication is so important. Communication is really at the center of how we come to know ourselves, how we communicate, how we connect in society, how we how we um, connect uh, to people we love and connect across great distances. So within the social movement sort of field, which is where I come from, from a, so this is, I'm a sociologist and I, and I do work in social movements, in my world, Communication is important because it's how you get the word out about the thing that you need to, that you're trying to mobilize action on. And so in the story I just told, you get online and you say, hey, there's going to be a protest at 6 p.m. next Saturday and then see if people show up. And that's important. That communication sort of, that sort of communication mechanism is really important. And it, I am arguing in the book that that's gotten almost all of the attention. But if you zoom out a little bit and you look at what all technology is being used to do, uh, and by technology, I don't mean high-tech gizmos. I mean just the everyday stuff of life, stuff that you can kind of grab and use. If we look at technology not as cell phones and not as a communication uh, sort of platform, but we think about how it's used to raise the cost of incumbency or the status quo or business as usual, then there's technology everywhere. And so I think that the technology for communication is critical, but really I'm trying to say yes and let's look at the way that tools and technology get used to make the status quo too expensive. So all of a sudden, if we think not about communication, but but making the status quo costly, all of a sudden then we have human chains and we have barricades and we have Molotov cocktails and we have leaf blowers being used to, to blow back um, uh, tear gas that that police have thrown at pro launched at protesters in Portland. So all of a sudden, when we say technology, it's not just Twitter and Facebook and and an election and a hashtag. It's also all of these other ways that we have for seeing new things from new places. Books about drones, satellites, kites, and balloons, but also about how new tools get used to raise the cost of the status quo. And so, as you just mentioned, so you couch drones with these other um, aerial technologies, kites and satellites and so forth. Why, why couch it with those? And, and what does that historical perspective allow us to understand about drones that we might not otherwise notice? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, because you can imagine this book of being being about robots in politics. I mean, you can imagine this book about being the uh, including examples of the way new robots are being used in oceans to map, um, you know, to map trash and waste and to map uh, water quality and this sort of thing. So I could have gone in a sort of robots direction and just and mapped more broadly on robots. I could have instead said, well, let's look at drones and airplanes and helicopters and done a sort of more traditional, uh, air, you know, aerial technology analysis. The reason I ended up with the four that I ended up choosing for the book is because I think each one of them, we are in a moment right now where each one of them holds promise for democratizing surveillance. And I couldn't have said that 10 years ago because it wasn't possible for you or I to be part of a consortium or to ourselves launch a satellite into, into space. The costs of actually deploying a 
a very small solar powered um, satellite into space has, has just dropped through the through the floor and is at about fifty thousand dollars right now, which is more money than I have to spend on a satellite. But it means that people and groups of people can spe- can invest in that sort of vantage point and not just major corporations and a handful of countries. So what holds those four technologies together is their capacity for democratizing the way we see the, the places that we live. It's a new way of seeing things from the air. And so I, I then map in the book, not how police are using drones and not how militaries are using drones, but great books written about that. And we should be talking and thinking more about the ethics there. But instead, looking at how advocacy groups, nonprofits, protesters, social movements, scientists, uh, and everyday people are using drones for good and are using each one of these technologies in order to increase what we know about the earth, in order to help us you know, connect across great distances, to identify human rights violations, and this sort of thing. So all these pro-social, big, big canopy, um, uh, this idea of pro-social uses, lots of different kinds of uses fit. And I think those four technologies are the ones that anybody can access. Now I have a huge balloon and I've strapped, you know, GoPros to the bottom of this huge balloon and they blow around a lot. It's not a great, not a very stable platform, but you can buy from, I think public lab has a drone as a, has a balloon kit like this for, I think 30 or $40. And you add your own, add your own camera. And they got started um, by putting balloons up with a two liter soda bottle and a, like a camera, like a, a Canon camera as in a sort of a small, small pocket camera in there to document oil spills in the Gulf during the BP oil spill. So this has its roots in, not in large fixed wing aircraft and not in helicopters and, and NASA and those kinds of satellites, but in these smaller, more grassroots and fundamentally affordable and accessible forms of technology. Everything from a Canon that's already in your drawer that you, you put into a two-liter Coke can and and use some helium to fly over an oil spill all the way out to the $50,000 that it might cost to deploy a small satellite in space. But every one of those things I just described is something that that individuals can do without a license and without a permit and without permission. And that sort of democratization is, is what I really, in the book, want to champion. Yeah, I, and, and and you do a good job at it as well. Uh, so I wonder a little bit about how you think then about the ways that these drones get used for these pro-social and, and human rights causes and, and the way they get developed to do so. I mean, should we think of this as being a appropriation of a technology made for war or is it uh, something else? That's a great question. So so. I guess there's one way to think about this. There's a number, number of ways to answer the question, but I'll, I'll answer with a story, which is that I I interviewed for this project, I interviewed Abe Karem, who's the inventor of the Predator. And he's, a, he's I'm currently living in Southern California. He's, you know, 100 miles up the road from me. I drove up there and he was kind enough to meet with me and, and chat. And what I didn't really understand when I started this book Although, you know, the predator drones and those sorts of large weaponized fixed wing military deployed aircraft are not, are not the point of the book. I, I think that for readers and it was for myself and for many readers, when we think drones, we think of those sorts of weapon platforms and we think of collateral damage and we think of, of 
autonomous weapon systems and killer robots. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes into that space, either from sci-fi or from just the horror of watching um, weddings getting bombed by by these these technologies. So across the board, there's this real concern with the, with the weaponization of that technology. And so I went and I talked to Abe Karem about this. And I said, hey, listen, I'm writing this book about quadcopters and about you know small small stuff that gets used by the people for the people. And he said, he told, he said to me, you know, when I first invented this technology, it wasn't called the Predator. It wasn't my idea to call it the Predator. And it wasn't my idea to put missiles on it. And in fact, that the first use, the reason that this technology kind of took off was that he had invented them. Nobody would buy them. And they were sitting in a hangar gathering dust. And in 1999, there were the, there were, you know, conflicts in the, in the, Balkans through the late 90s. And in 1999, there was concern that Serb forces were disappearing, um, were, were, were killing and disappearing um, members of the Muslim minority. And so they, they were, there were satellites passing overhead. Uh, troops knew that when, when the clouds came in, that the satellites couldn't see, and, the, and they also knew the satellites couldn't see in the dark. So they innovated, and they, and they, were, they were suspected to be con, um, conducting these killings and, and burying people in mass graves, either under cloud cover or by the cover of night. And so, the, and so it was the U.S. sort of government that contacted him and said, you guys, you have these things mothballed. Why don't you dig them back out, and we'll see if we can get under the cloud cover in order to document hum, potential human rights violations and see if there are human rights violations that are happening. And, and it was what struck me about that, that story of his was that the way he envisioned this from the beginning was, was not weaponized. He did see it, I think, as, a, as something he would sell to militaries. But its first use, even when it did get picked up by a major government, was to support what we could think of as a right to protect intervention. This idea that when uh, civilians are being killed by their government, then the international community has a right to protect those civilians and to step in, something that did not happen in Syria, for example, but probably should have, and something that did happen in 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 the Balkans in the in the scenario I'm describing. And so I don't think that if I don't want to mischaracterize him, I don't think he's upset that they've been subsequently weaponized, and I don't think he's upset that they have gone on to to support Amer- the American military in the way that they do. So I can't speak for him there. So I'm not saying he's a champion of my kind of like peaceful, my peaceful pro-social drone use. I, I don't know. But what it did for me is helped me think about how this technology, even the fixed wing weaponized technology that I'm not talking about in the book, even that had its roots in a sort of research and development context where we can imagine it being used to support human rights, human rights efforts on the ground in, as exemplified by that that first use that that technology was ever really put to. So I'd like to have a conversation where we're talking about technology as if it can be used for good. I think we're way over. I started the book in, a, in an era when there was a real very pro-technology. Technology is going to save us. And, you know, imagine what all we can do with all of this new connection we have. And I think that 2016 elections took a lot of that energy and the Arab sort of Arab uprising and its subsequent failure took a lot of that energy out of the sales of the real pro-technology folks in, in my world. And there's only, and, and, and I was really writing in a moment when people were saying, wow, technology is really, uh, we've really gotten the short end of the stick democratically. Technology is not doing good things for us. In fact, it's actually doing way more, it's having more harmful effects as evidenced by, you know, you know, fake news and this sort of thing. And so I'm writing the book in a moment where it's not really that popular to say, look at how technology can be used for good. But I think telling these kinds of stories and even 
you know, telling these stories about these smaller platforms like we used in Budapest, but also potential alternative histories or alternative stories about uh, potential that fixed wings aircraft, fixed large fixed wing drones have to support human rights efforts is an important counterbalance to the to the fear and concern that we have about drones. And we can talk more about what communities should be doing, but I think those fears and concerns are justified. My point is that there's nothing to be afraid of, but that instead that we have actually a whole lot to learn. Yeah. And and so when you're looking at these uses, the, the so many uh, uh, incredible and creative uses that drones are put to around the world, uh, you distinguish between those which are disruptive and those which are not disruptive. And I'm wondering what um, why that distinction and, and what what that helps us understand here? Well, I'm really interested as you as I, I've mentioned earlier, and you can you can imagine as a social movement scholar who's interested in in politics and protest and when it is that the people challenge the powerful in order to make a change. What I'm interested in is those moments when technologies get used to disrupt the status quo. So there are all sorts of uses of technology that are very, very positive that don't disrupt the status quo. So I I take students every year to go to visit a company called Zipline in Rwanda. It's a startup, and they deliver blood, plasma, and emergency medical supplies uh, from the center of Rwanda all the way out to its edges. So Rwanda is a landlocked country, and it takes about you know a couple of hours to get from the center of the of the country where the capital is to the edges. But by drone, it's a 30, 45 minute trip. And so what Zipline does is they deliver. Um, really urgently needed medical supplies like blood and plasma to hospitals and to small clinics all over the country from this like centrally located launch point. So that's really interesting. It's actually quite quite a, a different way of thinking about distribution of, of emergency supplies globally, uh, let alone in Rwanda, where it's, it's actually a doing some pathbreaking work. So this is really pathbreaking for Rwanda. It's really pathbreaking globally. And I think according to our traditional definitions of disruptive, we could say that Zipline is disrupting the medical distribution system. And maybe they'll go on to disrupt the distribution of all things. Maybe they will end up being the ones who have Amazon Prime Air that drops something at our front doors and they'll get there first because they've got tens of thousands of certified flight uh, flight hours in Rwanda delivering blood and plasma. So that might disrupt an industry, but the way that I'm using this term in the book is different. I'm asking, does it disrupt the status quo? And so as a social movement scholar interested in protest and change, I'm asking, is it actually taking on established interests, centers of power and authority, and and in order to challenge it to bring about something different. Uh, I don't need to agree with it, and I don't mean movements that I care about. I think there's all sorts of social movements that are effective or ineffective. I agree with, I don't agree with, all over the spectrum. So when I say protests and social movements, it's not a left thing or a right thing. I think that the Tea Party is a social movement, Black Lives Matter is a social movement, and the tools that social movement sort of scholarship brings to the table help us analyze the, these sorts of activities regardless of their political objectives. So the question in my mind when I use the term disruptive is, is it challenging and disrupting the status quo, either in terms of established public opinion or in terms of established uh, public policies, for example? So when I say disruptive, that's really the, the ball that I'm trying to move down the court. Now, if my technology-centric friends read this, they think, oh, this is or is not a disruptive technology as measured by, let's say, whether or not – 
zip line is going to disrupt disrupt the blood distribution or commodity distribution pipeline? And that's an important question, but I think a lot of folks have covered that and we've missed an opportunity to talk about whether or not technology is disruptive to the status quo. And that's really what I'm really focused on. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this book are examples in which um, such technology could empower well-resourced cosmopolitan um, activists and and nonprofits in ways that are not necessarily – in the interests of uh, local uh, poor and disempowered people. And you use the example of poachers at one point, and I was thinking about the example of um, illicit gold miners, let's say in Suriname or, or Venezuela or something like that. And one could imagine a technology like this being used to, uh, in fact, I, I believe I've, I've heard of examples being used to document such such. Um, illegal mining, um, which is done from very much from below. That is, these are some of the poorest and and least empowered people in the hemisphere. And so I'm wondering if you see certain kinds of risks in how civil society organizations might use these drones um, to pursue, uh, you know, what here in the U.S. might sound like a a great and noble cause. That's a great, a great question. So the first thing right off the bat we have to acknowledge is that technologies have politics embedded within them. And so it's important to recognize the extent to which new technologies or new uses of old technologies have, and it's, I don't want to get too jargony here, but have, have particular ways of being used that don't have nothing to do with power, right? And so as a, as a sociologist, this is something we spend a lot of our time thinking and asking questions about, which is who wins and who loses if we start, if we, if we, if a new technology sort of rolls off, roll, you know, hits the shelf. And, and it's very rare. It's, it's very rare that a new technology does not disproportionately either empower the already powerful or create pockets of new wealth in which the new wealth becomes the new powerful. And so, and, and, and that's a challenge. That's not a challenge that's unique to drone technology. That's a challenge that's unique to humanity. And so the kinds of, the kinds of concerns you just raised, I would say abs- are absolutely legitimate and are absolutely the kinds of risks that we run when collective action efforts are, are, are attempted or when we, when, we, when we live and work together on purpose on earth, stuff like this happens. But I would say that this is a little bit less of a conversation about technology, although it is, and is you know, situated in the larger conversation about neocolonialism and north-south, you know, global north and global south relations and the international aid complex and whether or not human rights uh, in the human rights uh sort of sphere is really working together with, alongside of, and on behalf of the people it purports to. So you're asking great questions. And I think there's no way to say, oh, this new technology is not, it doesn't fall under the shadow of that big puzzle and that big dilemma. Um, and I think it, I think it does. So that's one kind of way of thinking about this is technology has politics and we need to think seriously about those politics. But then the politics that technology have sort of like um, I don't want to say implicit in them, but that make available or make possible, 
Those things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in the larger context. And if we live in a world of radical inequality, if we live in a world in which the global north dictates terms to the global south on everything um, from trade policy to human rights policy, and we live in a world in which do-gooders try out new things on people whose lives they don't understand in order to bring solutions that aren't sustainable, that entire system is a problem. And whether or not people have cell phones or one laptop per child or drones doesn't actually address those problems. And in fact, it might exacerbate them. So I think that was me saying a prolonged amen to the kind of critique or concern that's inside that's inside your question. Um, so I would say, yeah, absolutely. Now, one last quick thing is, so what do we do about that? What should we do about drones? What I'm saying in the book is not you know what, that's a risk and I'm not willing to risk it. So let's not use that technology. And I think that has been one of the responses from many folks in the, in the, in, I guess there's a couple of different concerns or a couple of different responses. One is, woohoo, this is great technology. Let's go use it. And maybe there's not as much thoughtful, thoughtful deployment of the technology. And then there's another community that says, wow, we don't want to risk it. It's not the right thing for us. And we'd rather not try. I'm really championing the kind of like trying experimentation and, uh, and, and seeing what all we can do because it, 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 my, in my heart and my gut or whatever, deep down, I believe that's how we do cool new stuff is by trying stuff out and by sort of experimenting and trying, but we have to do it with accountability. We have to do it in relationship and we have to do it with, um, together, to, like together with everybody at, in, in a certain way. That's why, and I'll stop here. That's why I like, that's why I like, balloons and kites. You asked me sort of what brought all these things together. And I said, well, they all do stuff from the air. But another reason is that I like the that balloons and kites have a kind of, remember I said that, you know, technology has got some politics inscripted in it. Drones and kites, I mean, so kites and balloons have strings. They like fundamentally have a tool for accountability, which is that at the bottom of the string is somebody holding the string. And if there's nobody out there holding the string, you can cut the string. You can, you can, you know, Get the thing out of your community. So what I like about, about both kites and balloons is that they have a kind of relational, accountable connection to the earth where if you see something flying around and you wonder what it is or who it is or what it's about, you can just follow the string, find the person and ask the question. That's not true for drones. You can see the drone cause a little bit of concern. You wonder what's going to happen next or what it's doing. Is it looking at me? Is it following me? And you don't ask any of those questions about satellites because we can't even see them. So those two technologies are removed from from sight in the case of satellites, but in both drones and satellites, they're completely removed from accountability. And that string, a string on a, on a kite and a balloon, uh, has sort of accountability kind of coded into the platform itself, if that makes sense. So anyway, that's a, that's a, long, that's a long answer to your question, but I'm very sympathetic to, to its, uh, where it's headed. That's, a, that's an interesting way to think about that kite string. I, I like that. Uh, you know, so thinking about these creative uses um, that these technologies are put to, what are some of your favorite discoveries you found of how people use drones? So, so there's a couple of things that drones do that are really innovative and disruptive. But some of the things I like the most are kind of non-disruptive. They don't challenge the status quo. They just help us do stuff we couldn't do before. Like it's increasingly possible to sample what the, the spray that comes out, out of the blowhole of a whale. You know, this the spray comes out and you can't fly a, a helicopter right up and it's really difficult to get a boat right there and to do it. It's expensive too. But it's, it turns out that quadcopters or, you know, small drones are perfect for this. This is also true for, um, for documenting volcanoes. It's really expensive, risky, 
and uh, and probably not best practice to fly a helicopter into a volcano, an active volcano, but this is something we can do with drones. So there's like non-disruptive, don't challenge the status quo, just help us do stuff better than we, than we were able to do, help us do stuff we couldn't do before, frankly. And then on the more disruptive side, I think it's, te- it's, it's the use of the technology to, as I mentioned before, and it's the title of the book, to democratize surveillance and to actually ask what's, uh, ask about how resources are being used and to ask about how, um, how people are being treated. And so drones, for example, are being used to, to monitor deforestation in Brazil. They're being used to monitor and map exploitation in, in belts of, you know, places where mining is, is, is widespread or in the case of India and the brick belt there in from Pakistan, India through Bangladesh, where brick kilns are, are sites of exploitation. And so I think that satellite and drone technology is getting used in a number of cases like that, that is actually disruptive, where we're, we're seeing things from a new perspective, seeing in ways we couldn't have seen before. And one of, and, and the way we see things is actually politically loaded. So an example I use in the book is, I do work, my last book was on um, bonded labor in India. And, and I've interviewed people working in brick kilns. And one of the things that's impossible for me to say as somebody who's interviewed workers in brick kilns is how many brick kilns out of the total number of brick kilns that I interview people in. And then we, this is the beginning of establishing estimates and, and beginning to understand the size and scope of a problem. You take a, you figure out what's the population, you sample within it, and then you're able to extrapolate and, and, and say, we think that based on our, our data, 10% of, of, of all of these locations have this kind of issue. So you'd think you'd love to do that. Well, I would love to do that. And the teams I work with would love to do that for brick kilns. I would love to be able to say what percentage of brick kilns have people being paid fairly and what percentage have people being treated poorly. Turns out the the state government and the national government, neither governments, keep record in India of how many brick kilns there are. So it's impossible to, to have a national registry that you sample against. And so to, I, I'm a professor at the University of San Diego, but also at the University of Nottingham in the UK. And we have something called the Rights Lab, and the Rights Lab does all this great work on slavery and trafficking. And we have a project called Slavery from Space, and it really is doing is doing the work of mapping how many kilns there are on the ground using first we use crowdsource crowdsource and that later we've used uh, machine learning um, and you know what, what folks call artificial intelligence but isn't that's not the right term and and we've been able to generate this this larger estimate uh, for the for the Indian government now why wasn't the Indian government doing that and I'm arguing in the book uh, and arguing here that that kind of thing we just did is disruptive now it was it was challenging because it's challenging to the status quo. So I'm going to finish answering your question and and, and point to a couple of things that are not disruptive, but they're super innovative and super cool. And they don't chat. Everybody thinks we should be sampling. I don't Maybe there's some people who think we shouldn't be sampling the air that comes out safely sampling the air that comes out of the blowhole of a whale, but that's a kind of cool thing we couldn't really do before getting into volcanoes, something we couldn't really do before something that we really could do before, but, and we should have been, but we weren't is documenting how many brick kilns there are in the brick belt because we know there's exploitation there. And by we, I mean like the international community or by concerned citizens or the, I really think it's the Indian government that should have been doing this. Um, but and I, I'm glad that finally is, finally somebody is after all. So anyway, there's a couple of different examples of things that, that are across the spectrum in terms of disruptive and, and the disruption and innovation, I think. Yeah. Um, this- so that covers most of what I wanted to ask you about with this book. Are there 
Is there anything that I didn't think to ask that you want to make sure our listeners know about? You know, one one cool thing folks might be interested in is the way the book came together. And I think it's the most open book on the market. I haven't figured out exactly how to talk about it in that way yet. But essentially, the evidentiary body for the book is about 15,000 reports of nonviolent drone use that we, we collected and analyzed and put into a, into a data set and released a report. So the evidentiary basis, the empirical backbone, all the data on the back end is available, is scraped off the open web and is available for free. So there's a free data set and you can like check my numbers, essentially. I'm like opening my, opening the code, right? So that data is available. And then the book um, went through peer review, which means that, you know, my peers in, in academia gave it the thumbs up. And then it went through something called an open review with a group called uh, Knowledge Futures Group. They have a platform that actually allows folks to put their stuff out for public review. So it's publicly reviewed. So the data was publicly scraped, publicly available uh, data sets. And then the whole thing went through a public review where anyone in the world with an internet connection could give me feedback about the book. And then when the book is published, it will be available as a free PDF. It's, I mean, it's coming out, the, it will be out by the time readers or listeners hear this. Um, it's available as a free PDF as well. So I... Um, Academics don't make a lot of money off of books. What we really want to do is get our ideas out there. And so the book, through the generous support of my provost at my at the University of San Diego, um, the book is now going to be a free open access PDF. So that constellation of things, open data set, open review, and then a free, a free and open PDF, I think make the book the most open book sort of in the in the world, I think. So you can buy it for like, you know, 25 bucks, wherever great books are sold. Um, but then it's also going to be going to be free. And I think that's cool because it also speaks to the way that technology is disrupting, not just, you know, you know, new politics or new technology in the air sort of disrupting and challenging politics on the ground, which is the point of the book. But it also points to to the way that technology is even disrupting the way that we we write books. So I think that's pretty cool. And I was really thankful to work with uh, MIT. MIT Press was really good about being experimental and creative about this. But that whole process is a different New Book Networks uh, podcast that I did. So if you were interested in that, you can go. This is really not a plug for that process. It's a plug for New Books Network. You can actually go and listen to search up my name and open access. And you can can hear a longer conversation about how the book actually came together. Wow. That's, that's great. Um, well, uh, Austin, what are you working on next? I'm working on, I'm, I, should I say it? Okay, I'm going to say it. I'm thinking about what human rights look like in 100 years. And I'm trying to imagine what the long future of human rights really looks like. And so I've got a book project that I'm trying to finish that's on a completely different topic, but the thing that's in this vein and is really occupying my my attention at the moment is how do transformations in in artificial intelligence and machine learning and neural networks and in robotics like what does that mean for a a set of human rights regime human rights regime that's really organized around protecting the integrity of the mind and the body two things that are set to change very dramatically, if not in the next 20 or 30 years, certainly in the next 50 to 100 years. So that's what's got my attention and uh, has got my brain a swirl. So if any listeners want to talk more about that, you can, you can Google me and hit me up. I'd love to chat. <laughs> yes, that sounds um, – that's, that's a large order you have for yourself. 
<laughs> well, if it's not, you know, you know it, I have to, I'll, we can end on this, but like, that's the way this book started, right? This book started all the, you know, I started telling you this, I started the story in a classroom because that's where it started. It started with a set of puzzles and looking out at the literature and seeing that folks like Erica Chenoweth at, at Harvard are doing this really amazing work on, on protest turnout and on nonviolence and then asking, well, how do we know how many people turn out? And then just kind of tugging on that string. So I think that's where good ideas come from. They come from, uh, I don't know, staring out the window a little bit too long, maybe, or maybe getting knocked over the head. I don't know which of the two things that happened to me generated the book, but I hope readers enjoy it nevertheless. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this. I really appreciate it. 